everyone, my name is Pete Finn and I'm a lecturer in the Department of Politics at King's University and this is the COVID-19 and Democracy podcast. On the podcast today, we are going to be discussing a particularly interesting and insightful topic, I think, um, with relation to events in the UK, but how events in the UK have been affected by perceptions of policies um, implemented elsewhere. Um, and compliance with those policies and how they may or may not have been affected by the perceptions of their success elsewhere. So to discuss these events with me, I've got two um, eminently qualified scholars. I've got Anastasia Ashova, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Political Science at Leiden University. And quite wonderfully, I discovered just before um, recording, also an alumnus of LSE, which is given that we're based in London. Fantastic, um, for the, uh, in, just in terms of the locality of the project. And then I've also got Sebastian Popper. Sebastian is a senior lecturer in the Department of Politics at Newcastle University. And these discussions are in part based on a post that Anastasia and Sebastian did for the LSE's, one of the LSE's politics and policy blogs. And I'll put a link to that post, which I would certainly encourage everyone to go and read. Um, I'll put that into the show notes. So Sebastian and Anastasia, very much uh, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Oh, you're very, absolutely, uh, absolutely very welcome. It's my, my pleasure. Um, so before we get on to discussing the pandemic specifically and events over the last sort of year, getting on to a year and a half now, um, what did the literature pre-pandemic say about public compliance with health policy measures prior to the pandemic? What, what was kind of, obviously there's probably a lot there and there'll be contestations, but what are some of the main themes? Um, and uh, Anastasia, do you want to start? Um, yeah, absolutely. So it's actually quite an interesting question, right? Because uh, we would think about health policies generally in a more broader context of compliance with any kind of policies introduced. And we can identify a couple of main themes. So one of the most important factors is actually political trust and uh, perception of political process as being just. So some studies also identify individual level factors, such as perception of risks, for example. And when it comes to health policies, that usually is uh, highlighted as a perception of individual risk to catch a virus. So a, a, a similar theme, I believe, was explored before when it comes to SARS outbreak and outbreak of uh, Ebola in Liberia. So uh, this is pretty much like a broader perspective. And uh, we can, of course, argue that, well, here we have trust in existing institutions, which act as main actors instituting a policy. Hence, the level of trust people have in these institutions will inevitably affect how much people are willing to comply with new policies or measures introduced. Yeah, I okay. think this is kind of broader stroke framework that's great that's a really good summation and uh, you may have just hit upon the um the title of the podcast trust and just question mark that might be i think that could be a uh, that you, you, it only took us like 30 seconds good work that's, uh, i can see why you're an academic <laughs> very good um, sebastian did you have anything to add yeah i mean just just to add that actually we don't know that much about uh, compliance uh, regarding specific health policies i mean Restrictive health policies are not the norm. 
so what we know a lot and why where we draw a lot of inspiration is uh, compliance with other restrictive policies, for example, taxation. Nobody likes to pay taxes, uh, but we all do in the end. So the mechanism justifying compliance are very, very similar. Oh, okay. So yeah, so the idea that if we don't, if you don't pay tax, right, like nurses don't get paid, will cut worse most people um, to uh, to pay tax, right? I, I guess that's one way to think about it, or we can think about it as just perception of institutions yet again. Because if we perceive when it comes to tax system, if people perceive that the taxation is just or can benefit them, they're more willing to comply with the policy itself. So practically more willing to pay taxes. Of course, there there is like variation there with a bunch of factors that would influence the relationship but um this is essentially the hypothesis mechanism so yeah indeed there is a lot of literature when it comes to compliance of policies that draws exactly on example of taxation uh, and to what extent people are willing to comply with such such a policy so yeah this was somewhat of an inspiration point for us as well okay all right how interesting um and so we touched on this a, a little bit already, um, and I guess the, you started to talk about how you're developing your concept with relation to um, the, ta the tax system. So, but are you able to flesh out kind of like specific factors that affect compliance? Like, or is it, is it too? Are we too early on in that regard? Yeah. Uh, I can. Take oh yeah, this sure. One. Sorry, thanks, Sebastian. For my... Sorry. So actually. As you can imagine, there's a bunch of research already on it. I mean, it's in early stages, but I think there was already a piece out summarizing, for example, the link between uh, compliance to COVID and trust. And trust in institution, political trust, and also social trust, interpersonal trust, are one of the main leading factors that, that encourage compliance. But then, of course, this is also moderated by, you know, partisanship and who do you support? If you support the winner uh, and you trust the political institution, then you're more likely to comply. But uh, it only it's not related to this. And again, this comes from the wider compliance literature. Uh, it also leads to uh, skepticism about the policy. So if you believe the policy will work, you will comply. It's about risk perception. If you're at risk, you will comply. And also it's and this comes a lot into effect now. Uh, it has to do with the longevity and the persistence of these measures. So compliance tends to go down when we are in higher, uh, where we are deeper or more advanced in the pandemic. And I think by now we all feel about, uh, we all feel compliance fatigue or COVID fatigue and, and compliance is harder to achieve in this, in, in, in these circumstances. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that is true. I mean, we're now yeah getting on a year and a half of worth of restrictions, and so you could. I mean, in the UK, there was just a a relatively sizable um, rebellion by you know minister, not by ministers, pardon me, by MPs within the the, the ruling party. So, um, I, I mean, there is obviously. I mean, there's a lot of crossover between those MPs and the kind of the traditional libertarian leaning part of the. Um, that party but nonetheless yeah you can see that that frustration playing out so turning to the uk specifically and how they people in the uk um might conceive of events elsewhere do people 
in the UK have perceptions about the effectiveness of measures elsewhere um, and how with relation to COVID-19 like do they do they exist or do people just get on with their lives and follow the guidance that they or, or not follow the guidance depending on the situation um yeah Anastasia um yeah uh in to, to summarize it anyway yes indeed it seems that uh people in the UK do have a pretty good grasp in terms of first of all what was what is going on in other countries or how effective different measures are and like based on what we've seen uh, right based on the data what was uh, from december we've seen that well people used to think that uk did not do very well when it comes to comparing performance of the uk to other countries but only to some countries as well so yeah i mean indeed people seem to compare the performance of this country of their own home state to experiences of others which is quite interesting in uh, by itself but there is also a lot of variation and i think said there would be a better person to discuss that okay yeah, yeah sure I mean, uh, there, there is a lot of there is a lot of variation when it comes to compliance for example so the people have a generally good compliance regarding how other states um, handle the effect of the pandemic so most of the respondents, for example, in our survey uh, realized that Australia, China, Germany were much better in, in handling the containment of the virus than the UK. But what is very interesting is that, in a way, there is a spillover to the economy. So objectively speaking, uh, UK, right, from the five countries that we look at, Australia, China, Germany, Russia and USA, uh, UK had the biggest drop in, in GDP as a result of the pandemic, but given uh, how bad the US, Russia and especially the USA did in terms of containment, there was a spillover and people thinking that Russia and, and the US did worse than the UK in terms of handling the economic consequences of the pandemic. And this, we think, is also related to how the, how the entire story was presented in the news, uh, in, in the media. Uh, stories about the pandemic dominating the media in terms of, of, I mean, every news started with reports about the pandemic, their daily updates about the pandemic everywhere. And these effects most relate to the number of cases and, and the containment efforts and less to do with the economic impact. So um, this is what uh, drives it, but this is also the, is something that uh, gave us the idea about uh, about our research. Uh, so, you know, if, if people have a general idea and we see that they do about how the pandemic was contained in other countries, can you use those examples of, of, of good practices to justify tough restrictive measures? And also, can you use the bad example, the US, to justify not opening up the economy or not opening up the society. And this is particularly important uh, from two perspectives. If you look at the data and you look at all the policy measures taking place, all countries adopted a very, very similar range of policies. Uh, they roughly range from closing school, closing businesses and restrictive movement internationally, internally, 
So it was always learning, always took place. Not very few governments innovated in their fight against the pandemic. Uh, and it's also the fact that the international scene contributed to learning in this in this context. People, the UK citizens, could not evaluate the performance of policy based on on past performances. This is how we usually evaluate policies, looking at the past. Uh, this was not the case in the present. Uh, there is no, there was no such thing in the past that you can evaluate. Oh, how did we do in terms of you know a pandemic in 1919 and what worked then? I mean, that's too far gone. Uh, so this is one thing, and we already have some evidence that uh, COVID policies influence the evaluations of, co- sorry, uh, COVID policies abroad influence the support for incumbent pol- pol- politicians in, in, in their own countries. So in the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people based their uh, performance of their incumbent based on the situation of in Italy. Uh, so we know that whatever the government does was likely tested or tried before. Uh, and we have evidence that the, the handling of the crisis, travel and has domestic impact. Uh, so our puzzle, or I mean, our puzzle started from observation. If this is the case, if governments do this, all, all governments adopt similar measure. Why did the government, the UK government, never use this good bad example more often in their communications? I mean, if you can cite example of of good practices, and 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 say that look, those countries that are doing well did it, this would surely change or soften the public mood and also possibly uh, increase compliance. Even looking now at the present situation, I mean, with the tough, tough, with the travel restrictions that the UK has, uh, nobody ever, or I mean, there's little effort to frame them that this is, look, what we're doing is very mild compared to Australia did. And I'm citing Australia because Australia is viewed, generally viewed as an example of good practices. So just point, we have the idea hunch that just point to those cases yeah, sure. would increase compliance with the policies. Yeah, what I found interesting on the Australia example is, so there was a Tory MP on that, the more libertarian leaning part of the uh, the party on, on, um, on a BBC news show the other day and they were saying, oh, they've got the Indian variant in Australia and their cases are going up. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. That's the first time I heard it. So I looked it up. And sure enough, they have it, but the cases are like a dozen, you know? And so there's never, what I find incredible, and I don't know whether you guys feel the same, is that, so, yeah, so it's true. The, the oh, Delta, right, is the, the name of the Indian variant, right? Um, it's true that it has made its way to Australia, but because, but surely the next stage on is, but because Australia had such a low amount of cases, it was easier for them. It will be easier for them to manage that now. Is that? But that's not really used as part of the conversation. And, and also, it's not only that Australia had low number of cases because they shut air traffic. Sure. And, you know, in the current situation, there is a huge debate about how how travel policy should be managed in the country. And for me, it's incredibly surprising that nobody comes out and says, like, look, we're following the example of countries that have zero cases or close to zero cases. I mean, that that might not convince all people, but some people might be 
convinced that you know these tough restrictive policies, especially in the context of a libertarian government or liber- members of the ruling party that are libertarian, this this argument would be beneficial for them or also beneficial in terms of general compliance. Sure. Okay. And so now that I guess going to turn to a, a slightly more nerdy question, which is like that when I was do, reading your work, I was really interested in your methodology, right? Because I was thinking how how did they how did they go about sort of unpicking this puzzle that that you guys were exploring? So um, Anastasia, um, how did you research into these different perceptions? Like how, where did you find the evidence, and, and how did you kind of go about exploring it in a way that allowed you to understand this question? That's indeed a very um, important point to highlight. So here I think what's important is to contextualize the data that we are drawing on, so the development of the pandemic. So it was mid-December last year, which means we already observed people who had quite some experience in choosing whether to comply or not to comply with measures. Already we observed quite strict measures in place, and also the amount of information that people receive about other COVID handling uh, policies across the world is already extremely high. So practically that point in time allowed us to collect information and see what is happening exactly in people's minds. And I think also it's funny that you consider that, you know, it's uh, December time, pre-Christmas moon, and, you know, festive uh, moods uh, somewhat by the restricting Christmas together might have been also kind of important uh, in a broader context. So that um, the data all came from Ipsos Mori online random probability knowledge panel. So and it's important to mention that it's a relatively high quality data and it's not the classic op- in panels. So panelists were recruited offline based on the random draw from uh, address registry. So we have a brand, uh, random sample of data and we asked respondents several questions. We asked them to express their opinion whether they think specific country is doing better in comparison to the UK and whether uh, on two dimensions, right, or whether they think the country is doing better in terms of handling the crisis, in terms of economic consequences, or just containment of the virus. So at this point where we are, what we have is a correlational evidence, right? So we uh, we need to move forward to develop more causal approach, but this is perhaps plans for the future. So for now, what we see that indeed information we got from public in December shows a very interesting pattern that indeed people listen to reports in media, they managed to build a conclusion about several, uh, actually quite a few countries that vary in terms of their perceptions, uh, in terms of their performance on two dimensions, which was quite interesting for us to see. And um, yeah, so ultimately we wanted to see if the perception of a better performance would make individuals comply with similar policies or even more restrictive ones. And collecting information about how the public perceives other countries' policies was uh, the main challenge, right? We never knew whether people know enough about policies in Australia or in Russia. I mean, it's quite easy to, I guess, to collect information about the US because it's all over the place uh, when it comes to media and there is a lot of information 
but at the same time, we were very happy and quite surprised to see that overall, participants had quite a good knowledge about uh, what is going on in other countries. Yeah. So, Sebastian, did I miss anything at all? I mean, this was... Another important point is that by December, by the time we started analyzing data, we had like um, actually objective measure of of handling both the both both the containment of the visit, and we have very good measure of the economic consequences. So we we were able to move beyond perception about what other countries doing to actually some objective benchmark. So we we have in a way knowledge about how other countries are handling the crisis, which for us was, was quite important because it allows us to move beyond perception, also linked to factual knowledge. Okay, brilliant. And so what so, so what did you, what were your main takeaways? You said that, I mean, I, this granted this is all um, kind of a tentative at the moment, right? You're in the early stages of what sounds like it's going to be a longer term investigation but if you were say you were faced with a policy maker now um what what would be your kind of key takeaways um uh, anastasia yeah well uh we hope that first of all whatever we show at the moment can be extended beyond covid right because this is a classic example of uh, unprecedented policy uh you know at least in unprecedented in europe which means perhaps it is a quite a good pointer in terms of how the policies should be communicated in order to improve public compliance. Because it hardly can be argued that a restrictive policy or a tough policy can be popular from the beginning. Which means, uh, in theory, politicians could use this uh, approach and foreign example or successful examples in other countries to demonstrate to what extent the policy can be beneficial to the public. However, we should be quite careful here because it's a stick with two ends, right? Uh, I mean, we are talking about positive policies and beneficial policies, but unfortunately, it can also be twisted the other way around in the sense that restrictive policies that infringe uh, basic freedoms and lead to the introduction of laws that are absolutely outrageous uh, could be you know, introduced in the same way. You can think about quite a few European countries that introduced uh, restrictive policies on specific parts of the communities using policies abroad. So it's quite a difficult thing to say that, well, it's only a positive takeaway, but it does, like our results suggest that indeed, first of all, communication, clear communication, the use of um, specific yet clear and effective examples can be a way to proceed and justify any kind of policy introduced within the state, which means uh, by opening up and communicating clearly, we can also imagine that the perception or trust in the institutions can be affected, which can also be a mechanism fostering compliance, because we know that transparency of the institution and better understanding of policies introduced by the state would influence how people perceive policies, for example, as being just or justified for that matter. Hence, we have quite a big ambition in terms of what takeaways can be from our research, but overall, yeah, this would sum it up. Examples of good practices can be used um, to justify policies, and 
it is important to keep in mind that we need to consider democratic context and uh, repercussions when it comes to infringing freedoms as well though yep okay brilliant and um that was really well surmised um, and sebastian um it is that so there was some really interesting stuff there that anastasia was talking about with relation to uh the, i guess the kind of maybe for want of a better phrase like the potential dark side to the potential negatives that could come from the lessons learned around such messaging um does that make it in does that kind of increase the importance of things like parliamentary oversight internal oversight bodies um journalism kind of that it, it does that mean it's more important than ever or, or at least as important as it ever has been that um, oversight of government policies takes place? Is that... that would I mean, you... we, it's, it's, I think this is obviously the case. And, and you, you can, again, I mean, this is a set of policies that are very infringing on personal liberties. But at least, even if you don't fully agree with them, you can agree they are, to some extent, benefic or beneficial for the population or in the long run. So even in this case, and, and you see a lot in the debate about following the science or being guided by the science. <laughs> I always like that, as if there's a science, there's a single science out there. There is, there is some science out there that's being followed or it guides us. We don't know that science or, or the science is sometimes fake, but seemingly there is one. But uh, yeah, on a, on a more serious note, uh, there, there are trades off, right? So there is trades off about how, what we can do, what's allowed to do, because, you know, uh, China did extremely well in the pandemic, but even in our sample, respondents uh, acknowledge that they will they are less likely to follow Chinese policies than they are likely to follow Australian policies. And we need to be careful about what we implement and how we implement them. And then I hear oversight is, is always important. And even in the context of this research, like just one of the messages we do is like, let's look at who's implementing these policies. Because if, you know, these are policies in countries that are recognized as democracies, as liberal, as well-established liberal democracies, we have a good sense that these are accepted policies. But as a citizen, I, I would be worried if I see, you know, uh, the UK started to address, to adopt policies that are very, very similar to what China or other non-democratic countries are doing. Uh, for example, in terms <laughs> of using surveillance to or mobile data to find people for traveling during a pandemic. I mean, that policy was very efficient in containing the virus, but again, the dark side of it. So yes, oversight from, from all bodies, parliamentary bodies, uh, the media, but also the knowledge of the, pub, of the public, public opinion uh, is, is very important. And I think we saw in the past that the current government is very attentive and is willing to switch policy track when when public opinion signals something different sure when marcus rashford says please feed school kids <laughs> that seems they must hate it <laughs> the government must be like oh no marcus rashford after us again <laughs> maybe we should convince marcus rashford to also say something about complying to the, to the sure rules. yeah i do that i mean we just i do i mean he probably well maybe I bring him up. I'm a football fan, but I mean I do wonder about whether I mean can we imagine in 15 years Marcus Rashford as being part of the cabinet? I probably can. I mean he seems to be very eloquent, right? Very well spoken, very well thought 
out. He seems to be. He's definitely a better communicator than most members of the cabinet. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, and so before we wrap up, is there any kind of final comments or um, any final points you wanted to make? I mean, you know, this, this tough type of rough policies will not end now. I mean, even if you think that the virus is not over and there's some restrictive policy at place, it's one, it's one point, but all this, all, all the bailouts, all the payments will have to be followed by very, very harsh economic policies sure. in the future. Sure. And it goes to the initial point talking about taxation, about how we can convince people to comply or to support those very harsh economic policies. So again, trying to learn from other countries and sure. have examples of good practice. And the compliance in that the compliance in that regard, I guess part of the conversation is is, is around companies, right? Like, like I, I have to pay my tax and fine, sure. Um, but. I, you know, if you are a big company, you can structure yourself in such a manner that um, you seemingly don't have to, <laughs> uh, or certainly not to the same extent that, that individuals do. I mean, that would be interesting to see if, you know, governments can use public pressure to make companies comply with what will be hopefully an increase in, in corporate taxes. Sure. Yeah. And Anastasia, was there any final points? Um, yeah, I was just actually thinking to what extent this um, our findings uh, would be like slowly shifting because we right now operating in the kind of setting when we have an unprecedented event in a way, right, in Europe. But as we progress, so people there is still additional learning mechanism going on. So it's quite an interesting thing to see in the future to what extent. This perception of good practices in democracies versus autocracies would be more clear cut among various populations, right? To what extent people would continue mixing or uh, showing this like spillover effect when it comes to different aspects of a policy, or whether as time progresses, there would be much more clean and clear differentiation between various issues. So, this is something quite so something to see in the future, I would say. But again, if we consider, if we look beyond COVID, indeed, what Sebastian mentioned, uh, an interesting thing to see would be how things are going to develop and what kind of other policies will be introduced and to what extent they would be as unprecedented uh, as the ones aimed at handling coronavirus. Sure. And uh, when you do that work, come back on again and we can uh, we can find out, we can do another episode on your new findings. <laughs> I look forward to it. Um, okay, well, thank you so much, Sebastian um, and Anastasia, for talking to me and taking the time today. It's really been an absolute pleasure. And um, I, yeah, I look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Thank you again Thanks for so having much. us.